Jesus, uh, how he changes everything. And what I started to say last week, that basically uh, there's a twofold aim of this whole series. And I, I realized when I went back and listened to the sermon from last week that I forgot to say what the second aim was. The first aim we're talking about is this, actually we're looking at from Genesis to Revelation and how all of scripture really, it's not, it's not about us. It's actually about this guy named Jesus. And tonight we're going to look at how Jesus is the true and better Moses. We're going to look at that from Exodus. Last week we looked at the garden, how Jesus is the scripture. Paul calls him the, basically the second Adam who did what Adam failed to do. Um, and so all of scripture, it whispers his name. It declares his name. And so for, the, for a little while we're going to be the Old Testament. Then we're going to make our way to the Gospels. And then we're going to make our way uh, into the New Testament and in our semester in Revelation. The second full name that I forgot to say is how Jesus... I love the way that um, I was going to say my friend Tim Keller. He's not my friend. I have stayed at this place before, and it was it was unbelievable and awkward at the same time. Um, but he likes to say Jesus is the only God. When you find Him, will fulfill you, and when you fail Him, will forgive you. He, he's unlike any other God we've ever known. And part of that's the second full name of the series is to show you not just how all Scripture points to Jesus, but how Jesus really is the, the true and better everything that you've been looking for. Um, so with that being said, I want to look tonight at a passage from Exodus chapter 1 and 2. We're jumping around a little bit. I'm going to go Exodus 1, 8 through 14, and then just the end of chapter 2. You've got it printed in your bulletin. It might be a little hard to follow on your phone. But here's, uh, here's our reading for tonight. Exodus 1, starting verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh, that's the new Lord's name, they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So then we meet this guy Moses, and there's this beautiful part at the end of chapter 2. Where the people of God are crying out in their slavery, and their and their burden that they're bearing, and here's how the end of chapter two, starting at verse twenty-three. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let me pray for us tonight, and then I want to talk about this passage for a little bit together. 
Let's pray first. Lord, we do, we thank you for the ways in which you, we don't have to guess what you're like. You have shown us in your word what you are like. You have told us who you are. You have told us who we are as your people. And Lord, even more so in your son, you have ultimately shown us what you're like. And I pray as we look at these um, two chapters from Exodus and we think about our own slavery, which is different from the Israelites in that day, but how we too are enslaved in other ways. Would you be the one who points us to Jesus, the deliverer that we're longing for, the one that whether we know it or not, we're looking for? Would you be gracious to meet us in this place and, and deal with us in wonderful ways? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I think, thinking about this idea, so basically what we're talking about tonight is how, even though our situation is different from that of the Israelites, it, it's not that different. Then when we kind of talk about slavery, there are two ways of talking about it. One is a physical slavery that this country has, sadly, as part of our history, as part of what we have to deal with. But there's also a different sort of spiritual slavery that we're going to talk about tonight. There's an, there, we all have a spiritual Egypt, burdens, idols, things that we are enslaved to that we need to be delivered from. I think Kanye West gets at this idea pretty well in his song, New Slaves. I have it in the front of your bulletin. Here's what he says. Had to edit it a little bit, of course. Here's what he said. My mama was raised in the era when clean water was only served with a fairer skin. Uh, Doing clothes, you would have thought I'd I'd help, but they wasn't satisfied unless I picked the cotton myself. You see, it's broke racism. That's that don't touch anything in the store. And this is rich racism. That's come in, please buy more. What you want, a Bentley for a coat, a diamond chain. All you, you want all the same things. Now everybody plans, spending everything in Alexander Wang, new slaves. And what I, think, what I think is fascinating is he's talking about the two kinds of slavery that we're talking about tonight. There's a kind of slavery that, uh, that the Bible acknowledges that is horrific, that ultimately through the gospel was led to a reform, a much long needed reform in this country. But there's another kind of slavery. Because even when you think about what we've known as American slavery, what was behind it? When you think about how, why slavery existed for so long, even like the literal kind that we're, we find here and we've known in our country, behind it as an institution is a kind of, of deeper spiritual slavery to money and power and greed. And so what we're going to look at tonight is how we, we find ourselves, even though we, we, none of us, I trust, have physically been enslaved, that we all, Jesus says, have known a different kind of slavery, a spiritual kind of slavery. And so what I want to do tonight is talk about how our slavery is real. I want to talk secondly about how our slavery has layers. And I want to talk lastly about how our slavery demands a deliverer. So our slavery is real. Our slavery has layers. And how our slavery demands a deliverer. So first thing with me for a little bit about how our slavery is real. I've already said it. Even though we've never, you and I have never, I trust, been physically enslaved, we have known what it is to be slaves. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus in John chapter 8, he's having it out with the Pharisees. And in this fascinating, really um, cutting word, he says to them, because they're talking about, he, he actually talks about this passage to them. And he says, have you not known, do you not know, your, you claim you Pharisees to be your people of the word. And yet you seem like you don't even really know or in touch with the story of your people. And they have this, they object and say, we've never been enslaved. What are you talking about? And then Jesus says this, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Jesus is saying The reason we even sin at all is that we're enslaved to something other than God. Listen to the way um, one of my favorite writers, Chuck DeGroote, says it. He says it like this. He says, are we not all slaves? The Exodus story would answer, yes, we are all slaves. Slaves to image and appearance, 
to substances and relationships, to compulsive behaviors and abusive systems, we're all ensnared by the Egypts in our lives and the pharaohs that demand our allegiance. And this is the question for us. Your, your body may be free, but here's the first question is, what is your heart enslaved to? What, what is your heart addicted to? What is your heart so drawn to in this, in this way where you are not free? One of my um, favorite sort of like, places where I've seen this is uh, years and years ago when Lady Gaga was still Lady Gaga, like, you know, freaks coming out, her people. And it was amazing. She sold out. There's HBO special where she sold out Madison Square Garden, which is a hard thing to do. Like she had sold out. I think she sold out multiple shows. And there was this weird, this beautifully weird interview where she is about to go on stage and she's getting her makeup done and she really, she breaks down and she starts weeping and, and the camera crew catches it. And I guess she gave them their, her permission to show it. But it was this moment where here she is. She is the epitome of success, right? This is, she is living the dream of fame, of popularity, of success. And yet in this vulnerable moment, through tears, here's what she says. She says, I just sometimes feel like a loser still, you know? It's crazy because it's like we're at the garden, but I still sometimes feel like a loser kid in high school. And her answer is, and I just got to pick my ish up, pick myself up, and I have to tell myself I'm a superstar every morning so I can get through this day. And as I was watching it with my wife, my heart broke a little for her. Here she is, Lady Gaga. And she's saying, I feel, I still feel like a loser. Why? Because her heart in some ways is enslaved. Because here's what she knows. Here's what every celebrity knows. That you have the applause now, but you have to keep performing. You have to keep bringing it to keep the applause. And she knows there's a day coming for her where she's going to lose it. And her heart in that moment isn't free. So our slavery is real. But let's think, secondly, our slavery also has layers. So what's behind all this? What's sort of at the heart of all this? Well, leaving our spiritual Egypts and coming out from under our spiritual pharaohs is hard because this bondage is so layered. There are at least four layers to this kind of slavery, the slavery Jesus is talking about, the slavery of our hearts. And there are four different layers of it. Here's the first one. The first layer is, is simply objective guilt. Objective guilt. Objective guilt means there are ways, part of what sin means for us is there are ways where we have played God. Where we have, where we have said, God, forget you, forget what you have said or asked of me. And instead, what I really want is to be on your throne. And we rob God in that moment of honor, love, glory. Uh, the way I like to think about it, this is why I think Breaking Bad is one of the most fascinating shows ever made. Because you watch this man who is in a hard, hard circumstance of life, right? If you know this story at all, it opens with we learning, with us learning he's dying of cancer and has no money to leave his family or to deal with it. And so what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. And at first it seems sort of innocent, and then the genius of Breaking Bad, and literally Vince Gilligan, the creator of the show, will say, the goal of the show is to show this sort of innocent, likable man being transformed into this villain. Because by the end, he's making just off the cuff these God-like, playing God-like choices where he's killing people. And he's doing things to his family, and he can tell his conscience isn't moved at all. There's objective guilt. Here's the thing with objective guilt. And this is what's fascinating about Breaking Bad. There are moments where Walt is making choices that he is not at all emotionally faced by. Part of what's hard for us, part of what it means to be a sinner, we talk about that a lot in RUF because the Bible talks a lot about it. 
Part of what that means, though, is sometimes we're not even aware of the things we've done wrong. Because our consciences, we're afraid to let, once that little crack gets in, we don't know what to do with it sometimes. So there's objective guilt. And then, secondly, there's subjective, subjective guilt. The guilt that we do carry, the guilt that we do feel. We talked about that some last week. We could call it shame. We could call it the guilt that we sort of does, the, when the crack comes through and we do feel bad about the wrong things we do. Because sin is also fall, us failing God. It's falling short, what we talked about last week, falling short of what we should be as people. Uh, that's, I think, the genius of Gollum when you think about Lord of the Rings. Why, why, why I was so attracted, attracted is not the right word, um, drawn, drawn to Gollum because he shows that so beautifully, right? There are moments where he remembers what it was like to be Smeagol, right? But then he's still bound and enslaved to being Gollum and he realizes subjectively the guilt of what he's done. Then let's keep going, because here's where the layers get even trickier. Then there is, thirdly, what we could simply call addictions. This is the way. Sin is using God, manipulating him into getting what we really want. That's another way of talking about sin. The way that I thought, part of my story is wrestling with um, sexual sexual addiction. And the way that looked for me was mainly through lust and porn. And so part of how that worked out was I was been years in counseling in a vulnerable moment here. And so I remember a counselor looking at me and saying, here's what I want you to understand. We're talking about something that is beyond, that is beyond just simply stopping. He's like, part of how addiction works, whether, whether, whatever it is for you, it can be all kinds of things. It can be things like porn. It can be things like alcohol. It can be things like what your drug of choice. It can be things like actually harder idols, like the idol of approval, wanting people to like you. It can be the idol of, of wanting to be in control because you're such an anxious person. There are all kinds of addictions we can have. But here's the way he said it to me. He said, you can stop, but can you stay stopped? And that's the heart of addiction. You can stop, but can you stay stopped? That's a, the, a deep layer of our slavery. And then we could talk fourthly what I just mentioned. The fourth layer is that of idols. Another way of saying it is sin isn't just playing God, isn't just failing God, isn't just using God. Sin is actually substituting things for God. We can substitute relationships, right? We, we, can, we can substitute things. We can substitute dreams or plans. We can substitute all kinds of things for God, and we worship them. And we think things like this. If I have this, then I will be happy. If I don't have this, then I'll be miserable. And so we, this is where we do try to manipulate God. So for me, um, being vulnerable again, part of what that has worked out for me is I've always been a people pleaser. Like my, I can't remember a time in my life where I haven't been a people pleaser. Like, you know, I mean, there, there are times in my life where I'm like, I long to know the freedom of doing something and not caring at all about what anyone thinks. Sorry for the spit, Matt Francis. Um, my, this is one of my favorite. This is why Michael Scott's one of my favorite characters in the Office, right? Because this is Michael Scott. There's that my favorite moment of all time. My favorite Michael Scott one is that moment when they're asking him the question, "Would would you rather be feared or loved?" And he has that great answer where he says, "Would I rather be feared or loved? I want people to be afraid of how much they love me." I'm like, "Preach, brother, preach," because my heart is enslaved to that. Uh, let me let me. Walk us through how, how these layers intersect and play out. Um, I remember when I was in college, one of the things, here's a, a small example of, I think, how this plays out in our lives. I had, uh, back when, and when I was a freshman, um, 
there were credit card companies could still come to campus and permit their stuff. And for some reason, Sam's Club would come, and I'd like signed up for a Sam's Club card in this little table. And so this is probably my sophomore year, actually. I'm living with this guy, and I am just, I'm a food person. Like, I love the comfort of food. And so I would go out to Sam's Club with my little Sam's Club credit card, and I would just buy. I mean, it was like a like a kid in a candy store, like a college student in a Sam's Club. I don't. I mean, where there's just like massive amounts of like boxes of cinnamon toast crunch that I've never seen before, right? Like ridiculous amounts. But I would be like, yes, that's going in the cart. I remember getting like boxes of blow pops. Yep, put it in the cart. And so I did this like that whole fall semester. I would just go to Sam's Club buy what I wanted, come home. Here's the thing, though. When I would get the bill in our apartment complex, I would uh, look at it and then just kind of, like, not open it, look at, the, oh, there's a bill from Sam's Club and just throw it away. This was my thinking. It's obviously not rational. Depression's also part of my story. We can talk about that, too. Um, but so I did this all that fall semester. Finally, I realized, okay, I need to face this thing. So I take the last bill I get in December and I take it home and I open it. And y'all, I'm not kidding. It was like, I'm not exaggerating. It was like a couple of thousand dollars because it was, I was like not paying late payment. So I was getting all these late charges. So I opened this thing up at Christmas and I'm like, oh, I don't have $2,000. And I'm like deeply depressed because I'm like, why did I, why did I do that? Right? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you're like, why did I, why did I do that? And here's, I worked it out for myself. Here's how it was. I love to spend other people's money. I mean, it's not really other, you know what I'm saying? Because I felt guilty about not going to class, because I wasn't. Because I couldn't get enough cinnamon toast crunch. Because I love comfort. You see how all this, all this intersect? It wasn't just as simple as that was really stupid. There were layers to it. Now, thankfully, the Jesus in the story is my aunt who, like, was there when I got the, opened the bill and I was crying. And my mom was like, what are you thinking? And she was like, I want to I pay for this. And I was like, bless you. <laughs> so I still maybe didn't learn my consequences per se, but got delivered. Praise the Lord. Um, or let's take it. Let's take it. Different. Let's take. Let's take. We've already said it. Let's take porn. Why, why do we look at porn? We can say it like this, because we think that person belongs to us, playing God, because we hate ourselves, we've fallen short, uh, because in some ways my brain is hooked and wired, especially if it's been part of your story for a long time. And then the idol is because I get intimacy, perceived intimacy, false intimacy, without rejection. And that's not just porn, y'all. I mean, that's, that's why we stay in bad relationships. That's why we go too far in certain relationships. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff at play. And we could keep going, right? We can keep going. You have your own example of how this plays out in your life. The way that Paul said it in Romans 7, thinking about this, because there are layers. And again, I want, almost in every area of sermon you ever hear, I want you to hear, you can't do anything to fix yourself. That's the bad news. The good news is we're going to talk about Jesus. This is exactly why Jesus came. That's why Paul in Romans 7 says, I can't stop serving and doing what I know. I can't stop worshiping what I know I shouldn't worship. I can't stop loving what I know I shouldn't love. And then he eventually says, you know, he, because he asks the question, why do I keep doing the things I know I shouldn't do? And why do I not do the things that I know I should do? And then in this moment of like praise and despair, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you have to feel the existential weight of what he's saying. Let's do it like this. 
But let's play, this is my favorite. My, can I just say, let's play a poll? Because maybe this isn't resonating, but maybe this will. Because we have these internal things too, these questions. Let's play a, the most polite, uh, polite game of never have a ever. And don't actually raise your hand, but internally in your heart, raise your hand. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't. You could raise your hand if you're a bold, vulnerable person. Just raise it in your heart. Can you relate to this? Never have I ever. Never have I ever hated myself. Never have I ever felt like maybe something wasn't quite right with me. Never have I ever wished I was someone else. Never have I ever resolved to be a better person. Start going to church. Start praying more. Start reading the Bible more. Start exercising more. Start eating better. Start counseling. Never have I ever wanted to leave my high school self behind. Never have I ever wanted and longed that I could have the confidence of my high school self. That was me. Never have I ever heard the words of Dean Martin, Rat Pack, you're nobody till somebody loves you and felt that way about myself. Never have I ever felt if I were just a little bit skinnier, a little bit bigger, a little bit taller, a little bit shorter, that things would be better. Never have I ever bragged about my grades my exercise routine, my spiritual resume, because deep down I think people have to have a reason to love me. Never have I ever felt like if I could just be accepted by this person or that group, then I would know I'm okay. Never have I ever gotten to the end of a day, realized I didn't even make it halfway through my checklist, and considered myself a lazy failure. And if you've answered yes in your heart to any of these things... It's because you're enslaved. And, it's, and you long to be rescued. You long to be delivered. This is a moment that came up to me. I don't know. It was, I guess, on Sunday. I have a six-year-old. And she's, she's pretty hilarious. I mean, I know I'm biased. But she like, says funny things. And sometimes she says things where her name's Sadie. That she doesn't know what she's saying. This is one of those moments where it's out of the mouths of babes. Just this profound things come out. And so we're sitting there, and she's just like laughing, like looks at me, and she says, Dad, and this is like true story, she goes, Dad, you're such a failure. <laughs> Mark goes like, I had to ask her, like, what? And she said, you're such a failure. And I was like, it was a moment where I was like, Sadie, I mean, part of me honestly wanted to look at her and say, Sadie, I mean, she was joking, she didn't know what she was saying. But I wanted to say, Sadie, you don't even know the half of it. You don't even know how profound what you just said was. So our slavery is real. Our slavery has layers. But then, lastly, our slavery demands a deliverer. This is what I love about it. That's why I included chapter 2. God heard their cry. They were, you're never going to cry out for Jesus unless you are brought to the end of yourself and convinced you can't do anything, that you need a deliverer and you can't deliver yourself. That's where God's people, they got to the place of groaning. Have you ever got to the place of groaning? That's where Paul got in Romans 7. They got to the place of groaning. God heard their cry, and he raised up Moses. Moses is the perfect deliverer. All through the book of Exodus, we see that Moses is the perfect deliverer because he loved and was so close to God's people. Like, literally, the the part that we didn't read in chapter 2 is Moses kills an Egyptian to defend his people. And then he's going to confront his people who are arguing, saying, what are you doing? And then he has to flee because he's done something. They call him out and he flees. But he was deeply, deeply committed to the, to the Israelites, to his people. And yet at the same time, through that experience, being humbled and having to go into the desert and wait for years and years, he became incredibly close with God. What do you need in a good deliverer? You need someone who is both willing 
and able to deliver you. Someone who has both the heart who is with you and the power. He is close and a man of God. And Moses was the perfect deliverer. But if you read or know the book of Exodus, you know there are moments where Moses shows himself to not be so perfect. Moses apparently had a really bad temper. We learned about that when he kills a man. It's usually a pretty good sign he might have a temper problem. He killed somebody. And then we learned about it even more when he strikes the rock in Exodus 32. He had this temper, and God's confronted him on his temper and basically said, Moses, because of your explosive temper, you're not going with your people to the promised land. And that's a hard, that's a hard passage. But as good of a deliverer as Moses was, yet flawed, Moses is just a picture to us of the kind of deliverer that Jesus is. Think about what does it mean? Close with God and close with people. Jesus isn't just close with God. He's one with God. He's the son of God. And yet we know him and we sing it at Christmas time. We know him as Emmanuel. God with us. This is what I love. Exodus 2 says, basically the prayers of God's people came up to God. And what did God do? God came down. And God came down to deliver us through Jesus once and for all to to set us free from the objective guilt of our sin through the cross. Jesus died. Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live, and he died the death that we deserve to die. We talk about that all the time. We just sing it in before the throne of God above. But he also delivers us from the subject of guilt. He delivers us from the addictions. He delivers us from the idols because he is, like I said at the beginning, the only one that when we find him, he'll fulfill us. And when we fail him, Meets us with forgiveness. Um, this is what, you know, I, I was thinking about uh, this story out of my friend's life. It's one of my favorite stories. Where he had a, a friend in college who had gotten really, really wrapped up in addiction. Um, and I think it was heroin was his drug of choice. And it had gotten really, really bad. Where he, w- he had left home. He had left school. He was living in this place in Chattanooga. Basically the drug, the drug side of town. And his dad longed, like, there were, like, months and months where they didn't know where he was. And so his dad would go looking for him. And there's this one beautiful story my friend likes to tell where he found, he was looking for his son. He would go and knock on every known drug house in the city. And there's this one night where he found the house. And he went into the room. And the son could hear him in the, you know, in the living room saying, where's my son? Is, Is Michael here? I don't remember his name. And so he was so ashamed, and he was so high, and he so hated himself, he pretended like he was asleep. Because he didn't want to face his dad. His dad was like an elder in the PCA. We don't typically think about elders in the PCA knowing what to do in these situations. But this guy did. And so this dad came in. His son is laying there, not moving, not saying anything. He's waiting for his dad just to start railing against him. Just to start yelling at him. Maybe to grab him and just you know, yank him out of the house. And instead, this is what the dad does. He kneels beside his son... And he kisses him on the cheek. And he gets up and he leaves. The next day, the son comes home. He comes home for dinner or whatever. The parents are obviously shocked. They haven't seen their son in months and months. And they're like, you know, after all the greetings and the celebrations, I'm sure the crying and the laughter, all of that, they say, why now? Why did you come home now? And the son said something like this. Dad, when you came into that room... I was faking asleep because I thought you were going to shame me. I thought you were going to basically just yell at me, stomp your feet at me, grab me. And instead, Dad, you, you loved me. 
And that was what I knew. You're, you're, I can trust you. You can help me with this. I don't know the end of that story, but I know this. Jesus, the true and better Moses, doesn't have Moses' temper. Jesus isn't about shaming you out of your son. Jesus is about loving you out of your son. Um, I was listening to one of my bands that I like to listen to. It's called The Antlers. And uh, they had this song called Refuge. And here's how they all close with this. Here's how they say, what they sing. It was ministering to my soul today. They sing this in their song called Refuge. They say, when you lift me out of me, will I know when I've changed? And when you bring me back to me, will you bring me back to me unestranged? And then they say to themselves, man, you're already home and you don't even know it. You have a room you can, you can return to and you'll never outgrow it. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who is not just one with God, but he's one with us. He's the one you've been looking for. He's the one you've been longing for. He's the one who stands to meet you tonight, ready with forgiveness, ready with kindness. He means to lead us to change and repentance, not by shame, but by the power of his kindness. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, would you, we're not... Part of our problem is we're not convinced that you're like that. That sounds so good to be true to some of us, but we're, we're suspicious for one reason or another. Okay, would you show us, not just, through, not just through this text tonight, would you show us by your spirit and, and by your people that you really are this good, that you really are this not just powerful in your ability to save us and change us and deliver us, but powerful in your kindness and your compassion. And in your gentleness with us. Lord, we long to know the real you. Not the, not the one that we've made in our own image or misunderstood. But the real you. So would you be pleased by your spirit to show yourself to us. That we might be delivered. We pray these things with Christ in your name. Amen.